Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We are going through uh, the book of Mark, and uh, today we come to the time when Jesus returned to his hometown, which many of us just did um, over Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so before we look at the passage, I want to ask you, what is that experience like for you, right? What is it like for you when you go back home? When you go into the home that you grew up with, or you go to be with your parents, or you go back to a high school reunion, or you see your old friends, is that a joyful experience for you? Um, And do you experience your friends and family members that you grew up with excited to learn all of the ways that you've changed and how you've matured and the new things that are happening in your life? Do they just look forward to hearing about how you've grown since they last saw you? Or do you find yourself somewhat pigeonholed? Do you find yourself having people always wanting to live in the past when you go home? And do you actually find yourself being treated like you're 14, right? Maybe by your parents, maybe by your siblings. Maybe you actually find yourself behaving like you're 14, right? Do you, do you when you go home, drift back into a kind of a deep groove of you sit in the same seat in the den where you watch TV and expect your mom to come and bring you something to drink, or you argue the same argument you had a million times with your sister, or, you know, uh, you have the same questions that your grandma or your aunt ask you every time you get together. Um, What happens to you when you go home? Well, the reason I ask that is because in our passage today, um, Jesus is going home. And he bumps into this tendency that we have to pigeonhole people. And the reason we do this is described by social scientists and scientists who study um, the way we think. And the name for it is confirmation bias that we have this tendency to like to kind of lock in to ways that we perceive the world. And the reason we do it is because it takes energy to change your mind. It takes energy to discover new things. It requires a willingness to endure loss about what you used to think, embrace confusion while you're trying to figure out what this new thing is that you're looking at, and then energy to build a new way of thinking and relating about the people or the events or the external reality that we find ourselves in contact with. And most people aren't willing to put that much energy forth, right? It's just easier to kick into autopilot and to assume that everybody is as I remember them to be, that I've kind of got this person figured out and I know what I'm looking at when they show up. This is what Jesus bumps into when he returns to his hometown. He bumps into the confirmation bias of well-formed opinions, both about God and about himself. And we read about it today in Mark 
chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, which we've printed on the insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along. He left there, which is Capernaum, that's where he was, where he'd been inaugurating his ministry and where he lived as an adult. And he came to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did these men get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Well, what's going on here? This is Jesus at his most obvious Up until this point in the book of Mark, we've had to explain what theologians call the messianic secret, which is why Jesus would heal somebody like he just did in the passage we looked at last week, Jairus' daughter, and then tell everybody, don't tell anyone what you saw. Keep this quiet. Jesus has basically been doing ministry underground up until this point. But when he returns back to his hometown, he's excited And something's changed. Now, Jesus finally starts telling the people he grew up with exactly who he is. Luke tells us what he did. When he got to Nazareth, he headed straight to the synagogue. He took the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah. He opened it to this messianic prophecy. And he said, point blank, this is about me. Look at how Luke described it in Luke 4, 16 through 21. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. All right, You cannot be more obvious than this. There's no sense in which anybody could say, tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? This is as plain as it gets. And then he heals two people to prove it. Matthew tells us he heals two people right then in the synagogue. And so they see a miracle, and they hear him tell them point blankly who he is. And how did they react? Look again at our passage, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said. What is this wisdom that's been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Well, why were they astonished? I mean, after all, they're in church. They'd heard all that Jesus has been doing in Capernaum. That's why they showed up today. That's why the place was packed. They had heard about this teaching. They'd heard about these miracles. This should have been a great day for them. A day when the thing that they'd prayed for their whole life, that God would send the Messiah, 
has come true, and it turns out they know him personally, that he's from their hometown, that he's from their synagogue. This should have been the greatest event in their entire history. But instead, it's not. For some reason, it is deeply troubling for them. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. The Greek word translated offended here is skandalizomai. They were scandalized by Jesus. Why? Well, it appears that they were scandalized by who God chose to send as their Savior. They were expecting Superman, and instead they got the repairman. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? I know it's normal for us to think of Jesus as like some high-end furniture maker, right? He was this great carpenter. But 120 years after Jesus' death, Justin Martyr wrote in his dialogue with Trifo, Jesus was in the habit of working as a carpenter among men, making plows and yokes. Jesus worked in a farming community in Nazareth, and he repaired farming equipment. He was the repairman. He was a mechanic. He never really stood out as a potential Messiah. Sure, there was that incident in Jerusalem where he disappeared for a few days and really impressed the priest at age 12, but after that, everything had pretty much quieted down. He was a good kid, never caused his parents any trouble, but he was nothing special. I mean, nothing like his cousin John, who had that miraculous birth where the angel appeared and then his dad was silent for so long and um, then had that wild ministry where he moved out into the wilderness and clothed himself in hair and wouldn't cut his, let his hair grow long and dread it out and he's preaching hellfire and brimstone. I mean, Jesus isn't like that guy. He's just an average Joe. And to make matters worse, there's that, you know, rumor about his parentage. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? See, nearly all scholars agree that in the ancient Near East, calling Jesus as Mary's son is reflecting the fact that Jesus was born out of wedlock. And everybody in this small town knew about it, right? Remember, Joseph had decided to put her away quietly. All of Jesus' brothers and sisters were still in town. All of Joseph's family still in town. Everybody knew what happened with Mary, right? She and Joseph went off on that donkey to go to Bethlehem to get counted, and everybody could see what was going on. And so the people of Nazareth had concluded that Jesus was actually... A social disgrace. And now he's standing up in their church claiming to be the Messiah. That's just too much. It would mean that the thrice holy God who appeared to Isaiah, who appeared to Moses in light unapproachable, 
had chosen to dwell among them as a man so lowly that he rarely crossed their mind. But this shouldn't have been a surprise. God has always had a special affection for people that we look down on. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord says this to Israel. The Lord has set His heart on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, but because you were the fewest of all the peoples. This fact alone should have tipped them off to the reality of Jesus' claim. After all, the prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be an average Joe. Speaking of Christ in the prophetic past tense in Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, he says this, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Jesus would not have been an influencer. He wouldn't have been somebody who caught your eye. And so, they didn't desire him. Why not? Well, I can think of two reasons. First, we tend to forget that God created the world the way he likes it. Our desire for God to work supernaturally indicates that we tend to think that natural means are insufficient. But God's Word says that His world that He created is revealing His glory. It is doing what He wants it to do. Romans 1, 18-20, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen in the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. You see, since God designed the world, it only makes sense that He is going to redeem the world through an average Joe, a guy who looks ordinary and does regular things, like be a mechanic, because that's the way God wants life to work. It's ordinary because He likes it. And when we embrace the ordinary, we often embrace God. But there's a second reason that I think that we want uh, we're scandalized by God's use of the ordinary. We, we have this hankering for the supernatural. And it's a little more sinister than the first one. And it's this. If we're depending on God to do something supernatural, and we're unbelieving like the people in Romans 1, then it's not really our fault. It's God's fault. He, he's not being obvious enough. He's not revealing himself in a way that it's compelling to me. You get a taste of this in a story Jesus tells in Luke 16 about a rich man named Lazarus. Uh, excuse me, a rich man. And there was a beggar named Lazarus who used to beg for food outside of his door. And the rich man goes to hell. And Lazarus goes to heaven. 
And Lazarus is standing beside Abraham in heaven and has a conversation, Abraham does, with the rich man in hell. And this is how Jesus describes it. Luke 16, 27. Father, he said, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What's Jesus' point in telling this story? Miracles don't change sinful hearts because the problem isn't the lack of supernatural activity on God's part. The problem is sinful self-reliance and arrogance on our part. Like them, we have plenty of historical evidence about God's miraculous interventions in the course of human history in the words of Moses, the prophets, and all of the New Testament authors. This has happened a lot. This isn't a myth. These stories are not made up. They are historical facts. So we have plenty of evidence to go on. It doesn't move us because we don't want it to move us. We don't want to surrender being the kings of our own hearts and being the gods of our own lives. Which is why God has always preferred to use ordinary people doing extraordinary things to accomplish His will in the world. It humbles us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says this, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing that which is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in His presence which explains what Jesus does in response to their unbelief. Verse 6, he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. As Mark Sayers observes in the quote that we've put on the front of your bulletin, For even in the seemingly darkest and most confusing times, God still brings forth a new cohort of leaders, ordinary people, with an extraordinary role to play as carriers of His seed of renewal. Through surrendering to God's will, they discover and then advance His pattern of renewal in the world. You see, here's the good news of the gospel. God made the world the way it is, and He likes it the way He is. He made you the way you are, and He loves you the way you are. And He intends to use ordinary you to do extraordinary things of renewal in this city as you learn how to live a quiet and godly life and follow Jesus wherever He sends you. 
in your weakness and in your foolishness. You don't have to get it together. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be smarter than anybody who can Google anything. You don't have to have some supernatural gift of teaching or singing or being influential. You can just be you and walk across the street and say hi to your neighbor and ask them how they're doing and mean it. And Jesus can work with that. Look at how he did it here. He sent his disciples out. He summoned them. And he sent them out in pairs and he gave them authority. You see, these disciples were just ordinary, uneducated people. And their uneducated, fatherless, farm equipment making master summoned them to himself and gave them the same authority his father had given him to proclaim good news and to perform miracles that transformed people's lives. And this caused a scandal. Acts 4, 13 says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. So how do ordinary people like us get used by an extraordinary God in extraordinary ways like them? Well, the same way they did. Look again at verse 7. First, we have to spend time with Jesus. He summoned the twelve. He summoned them. Before God sends you out to do things, He summons you to Himself in Christ. Before you've done anything good or bad, so that you might know the grace of God, so that you might know God's unconditional affection. He calls you into His home. He calls you into His heart. He adopts you into His family. He clothes you with the righteousness of Christ. He fills you with His Spirit so that you will know before you've done anything good or bad, He wants you, not your performance, your presence, your person, your affection, your attention. Because he knit you together in your mother's womb for himself. And he sent his son to get you for him. Because of his great love for you. And how does he get it, right? How does God get our heart? Well, by becoming just like us. So that he could courageously and compassionately deliver us from the things that cause us to question his heart. Hebrews 2, 14-18, describe that fact this way. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring." Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You see, it's God's humility, it's God's compassion, it's God's kindness and his self-denying sacrifice that melts our heart and transforms our soul. 
And only those who know they truly need God to come and live the life that they can't live, to endure the wrath of the sins that they can't escape, to overcome the death that seems so final, the one that they fear. Only those people are able to look at this humble carpenter with gladness and with joy. Verse 5, he was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Why wasn't Jesus able to do any miracles there? No one was willing to ask for one. No one was willing to humble themselves and admit that he was their only hope. No one was willing to get help. They figured, ah, you know, I can do it myself. I don't need him. But once you receive the ministry that Jesus came to provide for you, once you respond to him in humility and you come to him, then he can send you out in faith to join him in making God visible in the world. Verse 8, he instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no travel bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any of you does not wel- if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, imagine that you're them, okay? Think about this plan. You have just watched Jesus walk into his hometown with very high hopes, go to the synagogue that he grew up in, tell the people who have known him from childhood that he is, in fact, the Messiah, heal two people, and get rejected. And Jesus says, here's the plan. I want you guys to pair up and travel to villages where you don't live, without anything to eat and with no money. And I want you to start street preaching that they should repent. And then I want you to trust God to provide you with food and shelter, but he might not. If you get rejected, I want you to shake the dust off your feet, head to the other village next door, and try again. Right? That's the plan. Okay? What if I were to do that right now and be like, all right, hey, listen, the application today is we're heading down to the freaking Harris Teeter and we're going to start street preaching in the parking lot. And if they reject us, then we're going to go over to the Starbucks. And if they reject us, then we're going to go down to Leroy Fox and we're going to bring it in that parking lot. And you'd be like, "Mm, no, I'm good, bro. I mean, I, mm, I don't think so. What kind of plan is that? That sounds nuts. And they did it. They did it. Why? Because they encountered a divine love in Jesus that made them self-forgetful. They were 
so overjoyed to be part of what God was doing in the world that they were willing to endure rejection, persecution, shaming, exclusion, you know, anger. And what were the results? Well, they were supernatural. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. You see, if we're ever going to experience this kind of supernatural life, then like them, we're going to have to get on board with God's preference for using us in our ordinary weakness and vulnerability. Which explains why Jesus said, every time you get together, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he took two very ordinary things, wine and bread. And he said, hey, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar fashion, he took the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. Drink of it, each of you. What is Jesus asking you to bring to him in order to experience God's supernatural presence? Your ordinary hunger and your ordinary thirst for God. And so this meal, this ordinary meal, becomes supernatural for us when we combine it with faith. When we say, hey, Jesus' broken body and shed blood is my only hope. I need you every hour. If that's you, then these ordinary elements, God's Word says, become supernatural means of grace in your life as you take them by grace through faith in Christ alone. If that's not you, then they just stay bread and wine, and they are meaningless. But if that's not you, we're glad you're here, right? The beginning of a relationship with Jesus is being confused by him, coming and paying attention to him and letting him disrupt what you have thought about him before. If you've thought that he's a great teacher, you're learning today that he claims to be God. If you've thought that he was like an inspirational moral figure, you're learning today that he's claiming to be your creator and that he wants to make you new. And so we're glad you're here. But don't come and take the elements because Christianity isn't a fake it till you make it kind of thing. This is personal. So instead, we put some uh, prayers you may want to pray in your bulletin. One's about a search for truth. One's about confessing your sins. One's about needing to be reconciled with other people. One's about asking Jesus to come and do a transforming work in your heart for the first time. But if you're here and you know the Lord and, you know, it's been an average week, and you're an average Joe. And, you know, you just have small sins that need to be forgiven, just the regular ones. Hey, great. That's why Jesus came. He came to make all things new, including average us. And so this table is for all who are ready to have their compassionate and kind human high priest, the sinless Son of God, feed them. It's our practice here at Cotswold to have the elders come forward uh, and to come down the middle of the aisles and then to peel out and go back around the outside. Um, the uh, inner rings are what here, Gordon? 
wine. Is that right? The little five inner rings are wine, and the outer ring is great. Outer rings, too, are grape juice. And then if you need gluten-free elements, um, they're in the little containers that are there. Um, and as I pray, the elders will come forward, and then you may come forward as you feel led. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you became so human that no one thought you were God, but that you were so God that no human who came into contact with your love left the same. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to feed our faith upon the fact that you loved us and you gave yourself for us. And we pray that in your name. Amen.